Thank you for tuning in to another edition of the Business of Fun podcast. Our episode today is presented to you by Booking Protect, the global leader in refund protection. Any booking, any sector, anywhere, Booking Protect has you covered. To find out how you can offer your guests a better buying experience, you can allow your guests to have a more personalized experience, and how you can help your organization create an entirely new stream of revenue, visit them at www.bookingprotect.com. Again, that's bookingprotect.com, the global leader in refund protection. My guest today is Alicia Jessup from Ruling Sports. And one of the things that I have found nice about doing a podcast is it gives me an opportunity first to have conversations with some of the really, really smart friends of mine that I know that maybe don't have as much of a platform as I do. The second thing, and this is where Alicia comes in, is I have this tremendous opportunity to talk to people. I respect their work and I haven't had an opportunity to connect with them yet. And that's where we fall in. And a lot of times when I have a conversation for the first time with somebody on the podcast, I, I ask myself at the end, did I learn something? And at the end of this podcast, the answer was obviously yes. Alicia talked to us, and you'll hear it. We talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about um, the social impact and the social component of marketing, especially marketing around uh, sports and entertainment. Um, through, and we looked at it through the lens of the Colin Kaepernick Nike campaign. We talked about legal cases. Um, I'm a little bit disappointed in myself for not recognizing that most of the legal cases that are take place in sports happen because they're antitrust cases, which don't tell my lady. She'll be furious at me because she's a antitrust lawyer. Um, we talked about Alicia's um, ability to create so much content. We talked about her career path. We talked about um, the sexual assault, assault cases that are working their way through the court systems and through have become top of mind in sport. We talked about um, understanding your strengths and your weaknesses. We, we really covered a, a great deal of interesting uh, content. Um, we, we learned a lot. The second thing is I usually think that uh, hopefully we'll, there'll be some laughter. And there was a lot of laughs. Uh, Alicia came up with like two or three different podcasts that I should start once uh, I've done some more episodes of The Business of Fun, um, including one on conspiracy theories. I, I, and I think she's going to help me out with that. Uh, we made fun of my self-seriousness when it comes to um, using marketing data and neuroscience the right way. Um, you know, we had a lot of laughs. I think that's good. And then Probably the third thing I look at when I have these conversations is I want to make sure that at the end of it, we both feel better about each other. We, we, we would want to talk to each other again, and I think that happened as well. Um, so I really do think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Alicia, Je Alicia Jessup on The Business of Fun. I'm great, thanks. How are you? Sure.
Kind of. So I I live in Los Angeles now. I'm a full-time professor at Pepperdine University, but I spent four years teaching at the University of Miami. And while I was there, I was writing for a number of outlets um, at the time, mostly Forbes and the Huffington Post. So I spent four full seasons in the Miami Heat locker room as a reporter, which is certainly one of the highlights of my career, because if you look at the men who were on the roster at that time, it was LeBron James for my first two seasons, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, um, Shane Battier. Spolstra is one of the greatest coaches of our time. So being around that at least um, 41 games a season, we went to two finals while I was there. It was just an incredible opportunity. But um, earlier this NBA offseason, so in 2018, it was the day that it was announced that Greg Popovich's wife had passed. And um, Ali LaForce was doing a post-game interview with LeBron James. And she asked him if he had any reaction to the passing of Pop's wife. And you could tell that LeBron didn't know that she had passed. And so his immediate reaction was kind of um, a shocked face. And his response was brief and people started ripping him apart on Twitter for it. And I was literally in bed getting ready to go to bed and I saw the tweet and I'd been holding on to this story for literally at that point, almost four years because I didn't think that people needed to know. But one thing was certain is in my time in that locker room, I'm obviously a woman and usually I would be the only woman in the locker room save for during the playoffs or finals when maybe there were four or five of us in there. And LeBron always treated me with respect. I felt like I kind of got to go behind the scenes and have the wool pulled off of him, if you will. And what I saw in the locker room was just a really quality person with a lot of depth who's obviously incredibly gifted at basketball, but just a really good person. And so, um, obviously LeBron brings a lot of attention. The number of media in the locker room for the Heat drastically shifted when he went to Cleveland. But one NBA finals, you know, during during the finals, things get even busier. And so the locker room was packed. You're basically packed in there like sardines. You're trying to maneuver your way to the lockers that you need to get interviews of players from. And then there's also camera people trying to set up their shot. And so like, I'm used to being pushed around here and there, um, but a camera guy literally <laughs> physically moved me out of the way because I was very close in front of LeBron's locker stall, literally physically moved me out of the way. And LeBron saw it and like his jaw dropped and he said, you can apologize to her, like just, just very casually, like, you can apologize to her. And here I am, I think I was 28 or 29 at the time. Like I'm the, one of the youngest people in the room. I'm one of the only women in the room. I'm not an ESPN or an Associated Press writer. I, I'm a business writer. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and LeBron's just like staring this man down. And he goes, you know, like kind of like, all right, like you can do it. And the guy looks at me, he's like, I'm sorry. And I'm like, it's okay. But it, it was awesome because he stood up for me and he... You know, I've had that situation happen numerous times in my career. I've never been physically moved, but I've been bumped into and kind of tossed out of the way. And so LeBron earned a lot of cred with me that day. <laughs> 
No, that's a great story, and I you know, and so I think uh, thank you for sharing it, and um, you know, and it makes me think about when you bring up LeBron and you know him being a good person. Um, one of the things we were shooting back and forth before we started the podcast was you know the recent uh, Colin Kaepernick and Nike commercial, and the idea that. Um, you know, Nike's sales online have increased. And, you know, I'm sure that you probably feel the same way as I do as far as the numbers go, is that, you know, the 31% number, while it looks great, who knows what it means in context. Um, but I mentioned to you that the thing that really stuck out to me was that there's the social component and the fact that Nike recognizes their need to um, be a stakeholder in the community that they live in. Right. And, you know, to me, that's like really important. Um, but I don't know. And I don't know how you feel about that. Um, you know. Right. So I, I would like to believe that's why Nike's doing it. But I'm I'm usually a little bit more skeptical and business driven. And at the end of the day, I really believe that this advertisement campaign is as much about what you say as the bottom line. And if we look at demographics, if we look at marketing trends, Nike is in the biggest battle of its existence with a competitor, and that competitor is Adidas. If you look at um, consumer trends, if you just hop on Instagram, Adidas has done an incredible job capturing Generation Z, and they've done that by turning to entertainers, artists, and athletes, and using them to tell their brand story. So suddenly Nike, now granted, Nike still generates the greatest revenue of any sport apparel company. But if you look at the revenue gains um, over the last four to six quarters between Adidas and Nike, Adidas is making some very serious gains that has to have their um, competition across the river in Portland sweating a little bit. And so what I see from this advertisement campaign is Nike is writing the playbook for how to reach Generation Z and this generation's growing buying power. For the last 10 years, marketers have spent most of their time trying to figure out how to move the needle with millennials. That period of time is quickly coming to an end, and now marketers are looking to recognize what Generation Z members want. And we know a few things about this group. We know that this group is very interested in social justice and social causes, we know that they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that's what this advertisement campaign speaks to, A, with Colin Kaepernick's inclusion, but also with the storyline of Serena Williams and her father coaching her in Compton, the ability that you can rise up above your circumstances and move towards something greater. So I, I honestly think that's probably more of what this is about than Nike wanting to be on on the quote right side of history i'm sure that's part of it but at the end of the day they're a for-profit corporation and this will move the needle oh yeah and and when you say you're a little bit skeptical then you know <laughs> if you're a little bit skeptical i then i'm extremely skeptical of most of this stuff you know, and probably pertinent uh cynical in most cases about yeah. some of these things um but what you brought up that was interesting was the the, the example of gen z right because I, I know that if you aren't paying attention normally you still get beat over the head with millennial everything and mm -hmm. it's interesting because when you compare like what adidas and nike are, are fighting over right now i was reading a really cool book from the uk called the state of play and it's about the sport of football and, mm -hmm. and it was talking just about this exact thing where like in the world of you know apparel marketing and shoe marketing and everything now with the coming up generation, they might not actually even care about the sport. You know, it's more about the kit and it's more about the, you know, the shoes and the, um, 
you know, or like you said, the social mission involved. Mm-hmm. So, and it's like, a, I think it's a huge shift. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of curious from you, from someone who studies this stuff, you know, how else do you see shifts like this playing out over the next couple of years? Well, it's a drastic shift. And what's been really interesting to me to watch, I mean, I, I'm not going to chat here and pretend like I'm a marketing expert. My expertise is the law, but I do study marketing a lot through my writing and through my teaching. And what's been really interesting to me is if you go back to the 1990s and if you look how Nike marketed its products versus Reebok, who was its main competitor in the 90s. Reebok is now a subsidiary of Adidas, so you know, still relatively the same players in the game. If you look at how Nike marketed its products to become the biggest global sports apparel company, Nike isn't really staying true to what it was doing in the 90s. So the example I will give you is this. Jordan brand is... 34 years old. Um, Obviously, Michael Jordan starred in the advertisements. But if you go back and watch the advertisements, the content is not, this is Michael Jordan. He's the greatest athlete of our time. Michael Jordan is part of it, but it's usually as a silhouette where he is doing something phenomenal. And so the underlying message is, is if you wear this product, you will be great. Not Michael Jordan wears our product. And though there's a difference there. Reebok in the 90s, was marketing athletes. It wasn't marketing its product. It was marketing Dennis Rodman pumping up his shoes and look, Dennis Rodman wears our shoes. So don't you want to wear our shoes because Dennis Rodman wears our shoes. And I can see a shift happening because if you pay attention to Nike's recent advertising, it's really athlete specific focus. Here's Serena Williams. She's on a court. Serena Williams was able to become the greatest athlete of her time. Here's Colin Kaepernick. He took a stand. He wears Nike. And I think what Adidas is beating Nike at at this point is they're creating a lifestyle. They're not saying here is Pharrell and he wears this, but here's what you can become or here's what you can do if you wear Adidas. And I think that speaks louder to this generation. I think it addresses the trends and the demographic preferences of Generation Z um, of being part of something as opposed to looking up to one specific person and allowing yourself to be motivated because that one person wears ABC clothing line. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I'm a, for better or for worse, sometimes a tra- you know, a marketer by trade, um, you know, and what I've, what I hear when, when I hear you talk about this is that, uh, and this is to me, it, it's, um, it's nice to hear. It's that they're, they're changing to ad- adapt, right? Because I think one of the challenges we see is that too many businesses and too many organizations, they, they're slow to change. They're slow to mm-hmm. adopt. And so this is nice um, or, you know, to adopt new ideas. And so this is like really nice to hear them, uh, you know, and see these things, you know, them embracing, you know, a social issue, uh, change, you know, changing the way they market and sell their products, you know, and, and, and really like, being forward looking, you know, and so, you know, that's what I hear when, when you explain things like that to me. Yes. But I I think you also have to be cognizant of, um, the long term. I I think in the short term, it's great to move the needle and to try new, um, marketing techniques and strategies, but Nike, Nike's the leader when it comes to marketing. So how far does it need to move that needle. And 
how far is it willing to go on the issue of social causes um, to promote its brand? To me, that's what I am interested in watching is how long does this ad campaign run? Is it something that takes us through the NFL season or when the calendar turns to 2019 and we're deeper into the NBA season, are we going to see new content from this campaign emerge? And so I'm not fully convinced that Nike is all in on this social social justice, social cause initiative as they were in the moment of, all right, like the NFL season's heating up, Colin Kaepernick's still not on a team, Serena's playing in the last majors, it's the same month, let's roll this out and see what happens. And th- this is where um, both of our cynicism gets uh, gets tickled. <laughs> <laughs> we can just start a conspiracy theory podcast next time. <laughs> maybe so. I, maybe so. That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you this too, since I know you said that you you know you study marketing, but your your real area ex- expertise is the law. And I know you probably just started a new semester, or not just probably, but did just start a new semester. Um, you know, so what are some of the big issues in sports? law that you're you know you're pointing your students towards or that you're really interested in paying attention to right now the biggest case that everybody needs to be aware of is the alstein versus ncaa case that is currently so we're speaking on september 21st um it's still in trial here in california and this case has the possibility to really impact the NCAA as we know it when the case and also the Jenkins versus NCAA case were filed several years ago. um, People like myself thought especially the Jenkins case could turn the NCAA model of amateurism upside down and eradicate it because of the decision in the O'Bannon versus NCAA case. So that was the case brought by former UCLA men's basketball player Ed O'Bannon challenging the NCAA's use of his name, image, and likeness on both right of publicity and antitrust grounds. Um, Because of how that case was decided, it took some of the teeth out of the Alston case. So this case is not going to result in the NCAA having to create a free market system for college athletes. But what you learn when you're a lawyer is change through the legal process is very slow and precedent builds upon itself. And so this is the case that I'm watching the most seriously, because if there is a favorable outcome for the plaintiffs, there will be some resultant changes to the NCAA model of amateurism, which could pave the way over time for greater rights and benefits for college athletes beyond a full cost of attendance scholarship. So I think that's very fascinating. Um, Obviously paying attention to the sexual assault allegations that are emerging from literally every corner of the sport world, uh, beginning with USA Gymnastics, now USA Swimming, Michigan State, And just seeing what types of policies are implemented in the wake of those investigations and allegations, I think that's probably the most critical issue that our country, the United States, faces right now in the sport landscape. Yeah, and and it's... It's going to, to me. It's going to be interesting to see how these things are dealt with too, because in so many instances, so many of these things were. It seems like they were just ignored for so long, right? And I and I get it, right? The the law does move slow, and it you know, and it does have to build on itself. But you know, I, I'm, I guess I, you're catching me on a day of optimism. I you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that 
you know, as far as like with amateurism in the NCAA, that something will be a little bit better. Um, so it'll be a little better outcome for student athletes because I, I know um, when I went to the University of Alabama, I had a lot of friends who were student athletes and they were, you know, I knew some of the, the, the star players, but most of the kids weren't star players and, you know, they were very limited. And then if they did, their families didn't have money, you know, they were kind of, um, they were in a, a, a sort of difficult position. So um, as much money as is coming through, there seems that there should be, um, you know, something there that they could help the kids, you know, a little like, you know, exist outside of just entities that serve the, the school. And, and that's, you know, that's sort of how I feel about it. Um, right. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I mean, the, the legal process certainly serves its purpose. I know that there's a lot of lawyer jokes and lawyers aren't the most favorable people on this earth. But if you really go back to pre-2008 before Ed O'Bannon filed his lawsuit and you look at what college athletes were receiving at that point, there is a decent difference between what they got in 08 to what they received today in 2018. And I fundamentally believe that they would not receive things like full cost of attendance scholarships or at the division one level, unlimited food or stipends for their parents to attend bowl games. If Ed O'Bannon hadn't pulled the trigger and filed that first lawsuit, or if people like King Coulter the former Northwestern University quarterback hadn't filed a petition to unionize. Or if Jeffrey Kessler, the man who brought free agency to the NFL, one of the greatest antitrust lawyers in this country, hadn't, you know, in his kind of like, I don't want to call it the twilight of his career, but definitely the second half of his career, hadn't said, you know, I want to move away from what I've been doing and focus on college sports. If he hadn't done that, and sued the NCAA challenging its model of amateurism under antitrust law, these benefits wouldn't have been given to the student-athletes. So student-athletes still are not receiving what they deserve. There are definitely still some improprieties that need to be dealt with, but we're seeing the legal process move the needle where student-athletes are gaining greater rights than they had 10 years ago. Yeah, no, and and, uh, I mean, I'm sure you agree with this as well, too. It's like... being a lawyer and doing things, um, uh, taking on some of these issues is the, one of your most important roles as a citizen, because nothing changes, you know, you, you don't really change, you know, without lawyers and without a focus on social impact, you don't really create change like this at all. Um, you know, but, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't see how it's possible, but then again, I've only ever lived in the United States and encountered this form of government. So I, I think our founding fathers, you know, for all the things that maybe they did wrong, they were incredibly insightful and wise men to institute our three branches of government and to create the legal justice system that we have today. Because, you know, to, to your point, there are great benefits that arise from it. Yeah, I guess now, though, now, now if, after I do my um, my podcast on conspiracy theories, then we'll do one about <laughs> social justice as well. Yeah, because <laughs> we're we're touching on stuff that I'd never touch on. This is great. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I never talk about social justice on this thing. This is awesome. Oh, wow. <laughs> nice. Um, <laughs> most of the time, it's like nuts and bolts of how you market and sell, get people into your uh, venues and do your events to spend money. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, but one of the things I, you know, and so that brings us into to something you know that I I know that we both share in common, which is our um, personal brands, right? Um, and you have a tremendously strong personal brand. Um, you know, at least in my opinion. Uh, and I wanted to ask you about this because I saw on the Twitters that you had, you started your career as a, 
a writer and focusing on content creating and building your brand in about 2011. Um, and I, I joked with you before we got on the podcast that if you're anything like me, people ask you all the time, like, well, how did you, how do you create all this content and how do you build a brand? Um, can I ask you the question? Like first, like how did you go about establishing your brand, your personal brand? And then, you know, is there a process involved in how you consistently create content? Yes. Okay. So we've been talking about Nike a lot. So how you create content is you just do it. (laughs) Um, I I was by no means a content expert or a professional writer when I started my website, which is called ruling sports in 2011. But I was a person who had just paid for herself to go to law school, largely utilizing student loans. Um, I, I had a good scholarship, but I chose to go to law school in one of the most expensive places in the world. And so I did have to take out some student loans and I graduated college at the start of the economic recession. And because of the recession, my plan that I went to law school thinking I would further was completely eradicated by the time I came out of law school. And so I was left with debt. Um, I had a piece of paper, Clarence Thomas, who's a Supreme Court justice, has said on record that a law degree is worth 10 cents. And someone said, why 10 cents? And he's like, worth the piece of paper is printed on. Um, so I, I had this education, I had the piece of paper, I had the mountain of debt, and I had to figure out how to make my dreams come true because the economy was not going to help me do that. So I was very fortunate in the sense that I got a really pretty good job out of law school practicing corporate law in Orange County, really nice law firm, great colleagues, good benefits, good salary. I was living three blocks away from the beach in Corona Del Mar, which is my favorite place on earth. Um, But I was really unsatisfied because I expected to work in entertainment and sports. And those jobs had essentially shuttered for people with my education level who needed to make more than X dollars per month to feed herself. Um, So I knew I had to do something and I knew I couldn't go back to school. I couldn't hire a career coach. I I had no money. And so I started researching free ways to demonstrate to the world what my knowledge was and what I was capable of. And Twitter was still relatively new at the point. So, you know, it's roughly three years old and it was used in a way that's different today. Like today, I feel like whenever I get on Twitter, it's just people lamenting about politics, but it was really like the world's greatest sports bar. So I said, okay, if I can come in here and if I can talk about sports in a smart way, people are going to want to engage with me and to interact and I can network with people around the world without having to pay for a flight. But I knew I couldn't just do Twitter. I knew I had to have like something else that I was promoting using Twitter. So I basically used Twitter as a marketing tool that was a free marketing tool. And so I used Twitter to direct people back to a website where if they clicked on the website, they could read my content and say, okay, this woman's practicing corporate law, but she really actually knows a lot about sports law. So let me keep that in mind. And I just did it. I mean, I stayed up on, I have no web design experience. I still really don't. Um, but I stayed up all night on June 30th, 2011. I built a website. I wrote my first blog. I was up until about four o'clock in the morning. I woke up at six o'clock in the morning. I took a shower. 
I went to my corporate law job. I didn't let them know that I started a website. The next day I went to my friend's wedding. I got an email inviting me to be on a radio show and literally everything in my career from that point forward happened overnight and it all happened very quickly. But I think the reason why that happened is is two things. One, I bet on myself. I knew what I was capable of doing. So I was willing to risk putting myself out there and the possibility that no one would read my content, nobody would engage with me, people might laugh at me. I was willing to take that risk. And I also took the time. Um, my life really shut down for about two years between 2011 to 2013, where most of my free time, if I had a lunch break, I was blogging. I would go to work, I would go to the gym, after the gym, I would go to Starbucks and I would write a blog. I was traveling a lot to do interviews and guest speaking, but I had to invest in myself to get this thing off of the ground. And I'm so happy that I did because I feel like I'm finally at the point in my career where I'm seeing dividends for the investment I made um, seven years ago. No, that, that, that's a tremendous story. Uh, and I think the, the first point of betting on yourself um, is awesome because I think what you said and what I hear is that you, you have to be willing to bet on yourself, but understanding that anything you do worthwhile is going to be require a certain amount of risk because, yeah. and it might not work, right? It's, <laughs> like, I was fully expecting it not to work. Like I, I didn't start the blog with some like grand intention that, okay, well, six months later, Forbes is going to reach out to me and offer me a contract. And then three months after that, I'm going to be invited to be credentialed for the Super Bowl by the NFL. Like I never imagined all these things were happening. All that I knew is there was something inside of me that I had to get out. And if I didn't get it out of me, like I was going to die like a slow, miserable death. And so I think what I would tell your listeners is if there's something that you feel like you need to do, whether it's creating content, whether it's volunteering, whether it's quitting your job and moving somewhere, like you, you have to trust your instinct. I'm a very faithful person. Um, you know, like I know this isn't a religious podcast, but Honestly, like, I think my faith led me very deeply down the road that I'm on. Like, I believe that there was something greater than myself paving the way, but I, I had to do the work. Um, I, I knew that the road would be clear if I did the work. And so you, you have to trust your instincts. You have to trust intuition. But thing, I always tell people this, they're like, oh, well, how, how did you get that opportunity, Alicia? I work really hard. Like I work a lot of times it doesn't look like that on social media because you like see pictures and I'm in ABC place or I'm doing XYZ thing. But what only the people really close to me know is just like how hard and how much I work. And so that's a big component of it too. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think I can understand where you're coming from where people, it doesn't look like you're working hard, but the thing right. is, is like you, what it is too is it's, it's not just hard work. It's hard work that's like has an intention behind it. Because yeah. one of the things that's very frustrating to me is when I see a lot of these uh, gurus right out there running around and going, "Well, you just have to like crush it and like do like yeah. you know just work hard, hard, hard." And I was like, "Well, you got to work hard. There is no doubt about it. But you got to work hard in a focused manner. Because if you're just like running around like just like throwing stuff all over the place, that's not a recipe for success right. at all." Everything I do is very strategic at this point. Um, 
in the last year, I've started consulting on the player welfare space. So I worked with the NBPA this summer, knock on wood, I'm hopefully expanding that space. But everything I'm doing right now deals with player well-being because that's the area that I want to be in. And so if you look at my career, if you've looked at what I've done, like everything was very strategic, whether it's what I'm talking about on Twitter, what I'm blogging about, the stories I'm writing for popular press, my research that I'm publishing in academic journals, um, the conferences I'm going to, like none of it is just scattered or random. I don't have time to waste. Like everything has to be getting me from point A to point Z. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, too, because, I mean, people ask me, like, what's the thing, you know, is, what, is there, like, some kind of guiding thing? And I go, I really focus on change and people. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, and I was like, going, so if you look at through the lens of change and people, then you'll see exactly what I'm up to, right? I mean, yeah. it's the same with you. It's, you know, because you can't, I mean, again, you can't do everything. No. Um, you know, and, and I, the thing you said about, you know, having faith, and it's not a religious podcast, but I guess maybe that's our third podcast we'll start after the, after like the, uh, the other ones. Um, it, I, I would like to reinforce, too, the people that it doesn't have to be like, you don't have to call it God, you don't have to have any, you know, call it whatever you want, call it intuition, call it, you know, mm. maybe you have a meditation practice. But that, that, that point is um, just unbelievably apt. Because, yeah. and I'll share a story with nobody. You, you're probably one of the first people ever going to ever hear this. Um, but when I lived, when I moved, so one of the foundational things that I did was I helped open the Experience Music Project in Seattle, which, mm. um, and I reported to Jody Allen, who's Paul mm. Allen's sister. So I reported mm. to Paul and, jo <laughs> Paul and Jody. Um, and how I got there was I had a premonition. Right, like it was just like intuition, just snapped into place one night when I was uh, opening some night. I had been opening nightclubs, and, and I was in Fort Lauderdale, and it was just like, Dave, you got to go to Seattle, and you wow. have to um, go to work at this Jimi Hendrix museum. And it was probably '98. The thing opened in 2000. Um, you know who who do like I'm a Fort kid from like a dummy from Fort Lauderdale, and but, yeah. and it, that was, it was like so clear in my mind, and I, I went and did it, and it was like really like the foundation of. Wow. Almost, most of what I've done and you know wow. I, I mean that's permanent you know premonition yeah. whatever uh, you know uh, you know intuition whatever it is but you know so your point at least to me is very important and one that I think people miss when they're always on right well and also I mean you you have to know what your strengths and weaknesses are too and I, I think that's part of the process of pick what you want to call it like for me it's my faith is like I know that I was put on this earth to fulfill like very specific purposes. Like I know I have a story to tell. Okay. Like, and when the time's right, like the story's coming out, like the time hasn't been right. I have a story to tell. I know that I work really well with young people. I know how to motivate and empower young people. So like I'm purposefully in this career where I get to do those two things as a professor, but you, you, you took a huge risk. I mean, that's literally about as far away in the continental United States that you could have gone from Fort Lauderdale. So you took a risk, you left your comfort zone because you trusted, okay, like I'm feeling this way for a reason and I'm just going to go with it. And I, I think a lot of people are too afraid to take that risk. And that's why a lot of people are very unsatisfied in their lives, whether it is their professional life, their relational life, um, their financial life, like they are afraid to take risks. But to me, it was never a risk because it's what I knew I was supposed to do. So for instance, I'm, I'm 34, I'm single. 
there's nothing I want more in this world than to be a wife and a mother. Like those are the last two things that are eluding me. But I, I know, like I can consciously say, I don't think it's time because I know I still have some other things that I need to do. And so like, I'm trusting that intuition and that's risky, right? Because instead of staying home and writing a blog, like I probably should be hitting the ground and like dating like crazy, but you have to trust instinct because it really does lead you. Um, if you know that the instinct is coming from the right place. Yeah, I have to get you out to the club. <laughs> no, but you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Um, I had, <laughs> you do, you have to, you have to trust yourself. And I, and I think that uh, that's something I see and and I'm really glad you brought it up because I don't see it enough anymore because it's, it's very tough. I mean, you know, if we, if we pay att- attention to, um, the news or Twitter or any of the or social media or any of these things, everything seems designed to make us afraid. Right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and to be full disclosure, right. Have I been a part of that at times or, you know, and do I still fall into the trap? Absolutely. Cause we're all, we're all human. Right. I mean, we're all, none of us are perfect. Um, you know, but the thing is, is like, you do have to trust yourself because the thing is, is like more, more likely than not, it's not, stuff's not going to go in, in a straight line. The, you know, the, no. the Seattle story, it sounds great. Right. But you don't, nobody knows, you know, there's a whole lot of ups and downs in there too. Right. And, it, you know, ultimately yeah. it worked, but uh, there's, was plenty of points where I sh- could have or should have turned back maybe. Um, I, I'm, thankfully I didn't, you know, it's, you know, and, right. I, and I'm sure it's the same for you, right? It's like, there's yeah. plenty of times yeah. where you're like, well, holy crap, what am I doing here? This is well, um, like every day. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, it's like most days still. Yeah. <laughs> holy crap. What am I doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're lying to yourself if you aren't saying that at some point. So, you know, like it's just a good pulse check, I guess, just to make sure you're still on the right path. Yeah, no. Well, I know you have a you have a heart out here, um, and I feel like we, we we touched on some stuff that I never ever get to talk about, and so yeah. hopefully that's going to be awesome for people. Yeah. Um, where can I point people to, for to, so they can find out more about you? Sure. So my um, Twitter handle is probably the place that I'm most active on social media, and it is at ruling like illegal ruling sports with an S at the end. My website is rulingsports.com. Um, I contribute to the Washington Post and the Huffington Post. I just just Google me. <laughs> you'll, find, you'll find some interesting things. <laughs> well, that was where I found the uh, you know the LeBron story, but also the Gabriella Union tweet that which was awesome. I was um, and, and oh oh before I let you go, one more thing. Hey, how about we put some money in and invest in some parking lots down at the Chargers Stadium at StubHub Center? You want to uh, you want to invest? Yeah. In- <laughs> yeah. So that, to me, that's one of my better tweets. Um, if I could go back and do life again, I definitely know I'm not called to this. Like one thing people have to understand is I'm very tongue in cheek and I have a very dry sense of humor. And I, I shared an NBA related joke earlier this NBA offseason that clearly did not go over well because Gabrielle Union thought I was calling her Paul George, which definitely I definitely know the difference between Gabrielle Union, who's one of the most beautiful women on earth and a male NBA player. Um, but if I could come back and do life all over again, I would invest the money I do not have to buy parking lots because 
it's just like it's boggles greatest. my mind how much it's like the greatest business ever <laughs> it's like low maintenance i don't need to be there to run it like in this day and age you don't even need a parking lot attendant you just set up a little automated kiosk you don't even need to pave it that often people don't care and so i live in southern california and parking is one of the most prime commodities in my region and it's it's just boggles my mind how much we're willing to pay for parking and what people are willing to do for parking. So um, I don't believe in reincarnation, but should that happen sometime, uh, that's what I would spend all my time and energy doing is financing parking lots. Parking lot ownership and selling bottled water on hot days. Those are like the two best business. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So if we re- are reincarnated, we will like we'll have to come back with like a parking I mean, lot and uh, water business. My dad tells me that you like try to live out your dreams for your children. So maybe what I will do is I'll just like motivate my future children to pursue this line of work, parking lot ownership. So there we go yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't miss the opportunity to talk about the parking lots I thought that was great yeah. so I, I was at the Chargers game two weeks ago and a friend invited me and you know my, my friend this is one of my like biggest character friends like he's always up to something and luckily he gave me a parking pass because I think if he hadn't given me a parking pass and I pulled up and saw that Parking for the Chargers. I'm a Denver Broncos fan, so like, why am I at a Chargers game to begin with? But if I had seen that parking at a Chargers game was $100, I would have turned around and driven home. So, but people are paying it. It's incredible. And I mean, I could talk about this all day long, but we are entering into a really interesting period of history where the urban experience is about ready to drastically change in terms of how houses are built in terms of how we travel from point A to B. But we have a real serious problem in this country with transportation. Um, When people feel so locked to their cars that they're willing to spend, for most of them, over half of their car payment just to leave the vehicle somewhere for three hours, there's a real problem. Oh, yeah. Well, um, if I had only known we could, we were gonna go, we could go there. We we could have had a whole podcast about the um, about pricing and stuff. Oh my god! I, um, yeah, I, you know, anybody who knows my work knows that me and the customer experience and pricing are uh, key key things. Um, so maybe so maybe this is like a a good point to you know. Hopefully, you'll come back and we can talk about that kind of stuff. You know, I don't know if I have forty five minutes to like contribute to that, but yeah, I, I will complain about prices and then you can give the theory behind it. Oh, so you so you know that I I pull out the theories as well. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'll just give examples of times that I was mad over the price of parking, and then you you can tell the the listeners what they need to know. Oh my gosh, yes, I'll pull out all those like neuropsychology, the neuromarketing studies because I'm like yeah. I'm a nerd like that. Um, yeah. Alicia, thank you so much for being here. Um, thank you for having and, me. And I think people, hopefully, people are going to love this because I I had a great time. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Alicia Jessup, from Ruling Sports for taking the time to talk to me. Um, as always, you can find me at my website. That's www.davewakeman.com. You can follow me on Twitter. That's at davidwakeman.com. You can connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you can probably find me all over the place, just not on in, uh, Pinterest. Don't do that one. Um, I have a newsletter called The Business of Value. That goes out each Sunday. If you're interested, I'm happy to sign you up. 
just send me an email. Dave at DaveWakeman.com. And if you have any comments, questions, concerns, or ideas, you can also send me an email there. Let me know what's what you're thinking. Finally, if you like what's going on with the podcast, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. We're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on a couple other places. Um, subscribe and leave a review. All this stuff helps. And finally, I want to thank our sponsors, Booking Protect, the global leader in refund protection. You can find out more about Booking Protect by visiting them on their website, which is www.bookingprotect.com. And until next time, take it easy. I'll see you soon.